Welcome to the Medical Sales Certification Podcast. This is Colby Wood, and uh, on this podcast, I have the pleasure of having Dr. Grant Garrigus on the podcast with me. He is an associate professor at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, and really focused in orthopedic trauma, sports medicine, and shoulder primarily. Uh, I think he would say specifically shoulder and elbow. That's uh, that's kind of what we get into on the podcast. Uh, quick background on him so that you kind of have an understanding where you're coming from or where we're coming from in this podcast. Uh, He has uh, quite an impressive resume, and so I want to run through a little bit of it right now. Um, He did his undergraduate school at Harvard, and they did med school at Harvard as well. Um, He then went to, and during uh, his med school at Harvard, he actually, they did somewhat of an adjoined program with MIT to do some research there. So we get into a little bit of that in the podcast as well. He followed that up and then went to Duke for his residency and then went to uh, the Rothman Institute for his fellowship in shoulder and elbow surgery. Uh, but there's a number of things along the way that he has um, has done. And in particular, I want to point out, this is uh, something I bring up at the end of the podcast. I had meant to bring it up earlier, but uh, it's just me, I guess, getting better at doing these podcast interviews, being the, being the host and getting better at asking the questions and not missing things. I meant to ask this earlier on, but at the end of the podcast, I get into, uh, his, the European traveling fellowship that he did. It was a, uh, it was like a six week, uh, shoulder and elbow fellowship that he was one of two, uh, surgeon fellows who represented North America. And so quite a prestigious honor there. Uh, anyway, we get into that at the end of the podcast. He, he really kind of lights up and gets excited to be able to talk about that. So uh, make, sure you, make sure you listen all the way through and, and hear the end of that. But that kind of gives you a quick background on Dr. Garrett Guse. And um, I you know, just wanted to say thank you again to him for you know, letting me come in and, and do this podcast with him at the end of his clinic. Uh, he's obviously a very, very busy guy. Um, and so I appreciate that very much. Uh, if you are listening to this podcast and you appreciate these types of episodes with the surgeons, um, I've got in the show notes, all the ways that you can follow him directly. And also if you are somebody, or you know, somebody that needs to see an orthopedic physician for any reason, uh, I've got the contact information in there as well so that you can reach out to him and or his staff, uh, if you need to be seen. So Without, uh, without any further ado, thank you for listening, and here is the podcast. Well, first of all, Dr. Garrett Hughes, thank you for jumping on the podcast with me. It's, uh, it's fun to be here. It, you, know, it, you have a lot of things that you can spend your time doing, so I appreciate you uh, doing this with me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. There's obviously a lot that we could touch on here. Uh, you have quite a, an impressive background. Um, and so part of, I guess, where I wanted to start with is what is it that's, let's say, motivated you up to this point, you know, to accomplish not only what you have, but also like what drives you into the future? You know, what is it that's motivating you individually and then maybe also in a career, in your career specifically, if that's different for you? Yeah. So, you know, my, my background is, um, I did a lot of engineering and kind of technical sciences. And so one thing I really like about my field, shoulder and elbow surgery is that it's, there's a lot of innovation there on the arthroscopic side, but also on the arthroplasty side, you know, huge innovations like the reverse total shoulder and alternate variant surfaces and these type of things. And that's very exciting for me as somebody who just likes the idea of kind of the design and the implant technology yeah. moving forward on a rapid basis. And so that's been the exciting part for me. So, you know, 
um, you know, I'm, I'm over 10 years since my fellowship and I've seen a lot of things happen even in that relatively short span of time. Yeah. I think what energizes me going forward is that there's still unsolved questions, there's still unsolved yeah. problems. And um, I feel like we're getting closer incrementally, but I, it's nice to see, you know, what I would call breakthrough kind of game changing technology just even happen during my medical career. So excited yeah. for what the future holds, but also <laughs> excited for what we've already done. Good, good. I'll, I'll probably touch on some questions related to that in the future of medicine a little later, but I figured we'd start with your background a little bit. Um, I know you ended up at Harvard for your undergrad. Where did you grow up and how did you then end up at Harvard? Um, so I grew up in Southern California. Uh, okay. My dad was in the Navy and he was stationed out in uh, San Diego. So I spent most of my years in San Diego, although we did move around a little bit. And um, That's God's country out there. It was, it's, <laughs> it's a beautiful, it was a, a wonderful place to grow up. I really had a, a, a wonderful uh, upbringing. And I thank my, my parents for that. My dad and my dad's mom were from Kansas, but uh, when you go to the Naval Academy in Vietnam era and, and you're, uh, you're joining the Navy, you're not going to get stationed in Kansas. There's no yeah. Navy bases there. <laughs> Last to check. So, yeah, yeah. so we ended up in San Diego. And then I, um, I was, uh, you know, tried to get into the best school I could. And I got into some good schools. Um, I played water polo at a pretty competitive level um, in, in high school and college. And I looked at some schools on the West Coast like Stanford. Their water polo team yeah. was just kind of unattainable. <clears throat> Okay. Whereas at Harvard, I could go, and we had a very good team. We had a top 20 team. That's great. But I could actually play and be a four-year starter and all those sort of things. So I know it sounds ridiculous in the scheme of things, but it was it was actually about the ability to play varsity sports yeah. uh, for me. And the idea, this is so funny to think about. At the time, I thought, well, I'm from Southern California. I live in San Diego. I'm obviously going to spend the rest of my life here. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, let me just try out the East Coast thing <laughs> and get that college experience to come right back. Obviously... I never moved back to yeah. California because, yeah. um, you know, when you're 18, you have no idea what the future will hold. <laughs> but yeah, so that it was it was kind of, again, high school or mine thinking about sports yeah. and and kind of my little sphere of influence and and uh, and then had this great opportunity to go to to go to Harvard. That's great. That's great. I, I totally get it. Uh, sports, you know, for me, was a big, uh, big factor growing up, too. So uh, it, on, totally off the cuff here, just curious. Are there like men's leagues like that? Like, do you stay involved in water polo or is that something that like you graduated and, you know, you moved on and that's, you know, part of your past life? So it's definitely uh, not considered like a lifetime sport, right? Like golf <laughs> or, or tennis or uh, what, or jogging oh, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's funny. It's one of these sports where it's really big in like Southern California and Eastern Europe. Like we had okay. some guys on our team, like this Hungarian guy who was fantastic, yeah. you know, and then, and then everybody else was from California. It was just huh. such a weird... Uh, scenario, but um, there was not a lot of water polo um, when I was in North Carolina. There were some club teams and played okay. with a few times. But since moving back to Chicago and being in a larger city, you know, a city like yeah. this has every kind of opportunity. So, yeah. um, uh, little shout out to Fenwick High School. Okay. So, Coach Coach Perry uh, was nice enough to invite me over to give kind of a little talk to his players about great. getting into med school and yeah. kind of my career to kind of motivate them to to study hard and everything. And he invited me to practice, and I had not played in 15 years. <laughs> and I, I usually have an excuse about I've got something to do or I'm yeah. busy later, but I had no <laughs> excuse, so I just stammered out, "Okay, I guess I'll come." And um, you know, a little a little out of swimming shape, but um, it's yeah. been great. I've actually been playing with um, uh, they call it the old guys league, and okay. uh, we play every Sunday. You know, pre-COVID, 
sure. uh, and had a great league. And it's been, he's been a real ambassador for the sport. And so, yeah, I've, I've started since moving to Chicago playing in a regular league. That's cool. That's cool. We were, uh, for those of you listening, prior to the podcast starting, we were, we were talking about podcasts and kind of like the niche podcasts that exist that you can find on any specific subject. There's so many things like that. Like I got into cycling. Like you just find these communities that aren't like cycling, I guess, is maybe a little bit more overt, you know, and you see that more. But you can find communities like that. And, and there's so many niche like interests and, and uh, you know, past experiences that you had that you can find people that, that have the same interest, same background that you, you know, spend time with that you probably otherwise would never come across them. It, so. It's it's the beauty of technology. I mean, the, the world is is connected in ways yeah. and you really realize that, you know, we're, we're all just one one big family here. Yeah, yeah. So, going to uh, going to Harvard. When did you actually identify like, yeah, I want to be in medicine? Is that something you knew prior to going there, or is that something that you figured out like in college? Or at what point did you identify, yeah, yeah, I want to go into medicine? So I actually remember it pretty clearly. So I thought I wanted to be a PhD, like a bench science researcher. So in okay. San Diego, there was a big biotech industry, <clears throat> and a lot of those guys worked at like Scripps. UCSD, yeah. Salk Institute, and yep. they would go down and surf in the same place I surfed in La Jolla. And so I'd see these guys, they're surfing just like I loved back then, and yeah. then they're doing their research. I'm thinking, this is what I want to do. I love science. These guys seem to have a great life, and girls. Um, and so I thought I was going to be a PhD. I did biochemistry yeah. and some engineering, and then I worked in an engineering lab. Um, <coughs> and the lab we did, I was very interested in neuroscience. We did little um, recording okay. from, from rat brains. Um, put these little electrodes in rats and had them run around this maze and really, really cool stuff. Really fantastic stuff. Very cutting edge neuroscience. Um, basically, there's these cells that can kind of, you can kind of tell where the rat is in the maze by which cell neurons fire. It's unbelievable. Wow. But then my neighbor was a neurosurgeon and I was telling him about, hey, this was what I'm doing in this lab. And, and he said, you know, you should come to the OR with me. I went and saw him do a deep brain stimulator, one of these thalamic yeah, stimulators. yeah. And he's like, it's similar to your rat electrodes. And he would put the stimulator in this guy, this terrible tremor. And then as soon as they turn it on, the tremor just stopped. And it was one of the most dramatic things they've cool. ever seen. And essentially, it was doing in humans what I was doing in yeah. rats. And I just thought, you know, this is where I want to be. I, yeah. This this is a human being. If I feel like uh, it just it had so much more of a draw to me um, yeah. to be in the medical field and dealing with, you know, people that you can interact with yeah. and see the yeah, results yeah. in a very tangible way. And so that was kind of a big thing that shaped me from kind of going from a PhD kind of neuroscience, uh, biochemistry, engineering thing to basically being interested <clears throat> in, in the field of medicine. Got it. Got it. That's cool. That's, uh, that's, I got to imagine that's uh, quite an impactful experience. You know, it, it was neat. It was literally what I was doing in the basic science, but seeing that Brought it all together. Clinically, yeah. and just realizing I want to be on the clinical side. Yeah. Love yeah. science, and I do a lot of research now, but uh, just having the, the clinical piece was something I didn't want to live without. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Um, and then you ended up doing uh, med school at Harvard as well. Mm -hmm. Is uh, What was the process like choosing to stay there? Did you have thoughts on going elsewhere? Kind of what, what was that process like for you as far as <laughs> identifying where you wanted to do med school? Well, med school, first of all, um, Med school is so hard to get into. There's not a lot of choice in the matter. I mean, yeah. you basically apply wherever you you work your tail off. Yeah. And you and I was very fortunate to get into Harvard. And Harvard had a really cool program that was just perfect for me. It's called the HST program. 
okay. Health Sciences and Technology. It's a combined program between Harvard Med School and MIT. Okay. So it's yeah. basically like uh, like med school for hardcore scientists. And again, I've done all this biochemistry and engineering. So for example, okay. differential equations are like a prerequisite pre, you know, on top of all the pre-med stuff, hmm. right? And yeah, um, yeah. so we had classes over at MIT. And for example, when we had cardiovascular physiology, <clears throat> they're talking about laminar flow and Reynolds numbers and all these you know, complex equations that yeah. as an engineer, and a biochemist, I, I was comfortable with that, and that really was perfect for me. And the, the group of people that I was training with were all in that same kind of science background. So it was just yeah. really a very cool, unique program. There's only 25 or 30 uh, folks in it a year, and a okay. lot of them get an advanced degree. So it was a really a great, um, just just perfect for me. So that getting into that program, and then um, I was um, my, my girlfriend, who we became engaged soon after, uh, we realized we're going to be in the same uh, city. Um, uh, obviously, uh, that worked out because she went to Harvard Law School. So that okay. just it just was, yeah. seemed to be meant to be. Yeah, so. that, that's interesting because I was going to ask. I saw on your uh, CV that you did some research at MIT, mm-hmm. and I was going to ask how that worked with your Harvard background. Like, yeah, when it's just happened. this combined program. It's really it's a small <laughs> program, um, and and it's again it's Harvard Med School, but it's like a it's an MIT kind of cross-pollination yeah. thing and it, it is it is a it is in in my opinion it at least for my background and what i was looking for out of med school mm-hmm. I, I could not design a better curriculum yeah yeah, yeah. that definitely fits with the uh, engineering background cool and then uh following that you went to duke for residency um what was you know not to ask the exact same question but kind of at the same time what was your thought process going to duke were you a Blue Devils fan? Is that why you ended up there, or was there? <laughs> well, how did you end up uh, at Duke for your residency? So it's funny. Uh, um, I, I, I mentioned my parents are from Kansas, so I actually grew yeah, yeah, up yeah. Right, rooting for the Jayhawks against the Blue Devils uh, <laughs> when I was a kid. Okay, but uh, but no, you know, it, it's again fast forward. Um, my girlfriend and fiance is now my wife, and, <clears throat> and still my wife. Um, you know, we were she's from Atlanta. We were looking at you know climate where we're going to settle down yeah. long term, uh, that kind of thing. And then also Duke had a great program. Yeah. Um, they really had a mix of the um, the academic, but then also a really strong like clinical uh, group there. Again, so many other great programs, yeah, but that sure. one I went down there, interviewed, um, did an away rotation there, and it just it seemed like a perfect fit. It, yeah. it did also help that there was. Um, some March Madness, some epic games going on against Maryland at the time, and you see the student <laughs> yeah, body and yeah, kind yeah. of that whole that whole scene was very cool to be part of that. So, so yeah, th- again, it's just like the med school. You go to the you go you pick what they're all so good, and sure, you just want to get sure. into one and then make the most of that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And and I was fortunate that I had done well in med school and and had some choice in the matter. Um, and 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 fortunate that that Duke felt the same way about me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you. Obviously, you know, fantastic school and, you know, fantastic basketball team, which I'm sure was fun. Um, you then went to Rothman for your fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, talking about neuroscience and doing, you know, uh, studies on rats and things like that. At, at what point in med school or in your, sorry, in residency, did you identify you want to be focused in sports medicine and then maybe shoulder elbow specific? You know, how does that, how do you go about deciding, yeah, I want to make this part of you know, the focus of my practice long-term. Was that a difficult decision or, you know, like going through the process, what was that like? It was a little bit difficult. And I would guess I would say in some sense, I never really decided. And that's why I picked <laughs> shoulder and elbow because it's a little bit of a hodgepodge. 
But I think that, um, you know, you go through your rotations as part of your residency. And um, the most programs kind of have everybody see everything early on and then mm-hmm. kind of come back as a senior resident, which is nice. So you don't, you don't want to have to make a decision if you haven't already yeah. done the rotation, obviously. Yeah. But I had seen all the different rotations. And it's funny, I hadn't really seen a lot of shoulders. So there was a shoulder surgeon at Duke, actually two of them, um, Larry Higgins and Carl Basmania, who left kind of about the time I got there. And then Carl Basmania soon after, Larry Higgins uh, went to Harvard uh, kind of right as I came in. So so I didn't see a lot of actual shoulder arthroplasty. Yeah. In fact, I'd never seen a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty till I went, uh, till I had, after I graduated. And oh, the, really? And then yeah. the only... I'd never seen an anatomic total shoulder. I'd only seen hemiarthroplasties. Really? Which is amazing. And I That's... chose, <laughs> but something about the shoulder anatomy, you know, reading about it, learning about it, um, you know, being excited about it. And then the sports medicine, the arthroscopy side, that was immediately interesting to me. Yeah. So I thought about doing hand surgery because I liked the kind of nerve stuff and yep. tendon transfers. And I really was very, um, very, very interested in, in frankly, the, um, the technical ex- expertise that a lot of hand surgeons have. And I'd done a little microsurgery in the lab. Yeah. Um, and then trauma, I like the broken bones, arthroplasty, and then arthroscopy. And I thought, you know what, I can do all of this in the shoulder. And because it's a growing field, there's a lot of opportunities for design yeah. and implant innovation. It just seemed like a good fit. Yeah. So, yeah. And it was something that I didn't get a lot of in my residency. So a, a great way to kind of go to a great place like Rothman and get all those skills. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it certainly, you know, now that I learn a little bit more about, about your background and interests, it seems like it fits with your kind of engineering mind of, you know, because there's so much product design innovation that's happening in the shoulder and has happened over the past, you know, 10 plus years, I would say that's, uh, that seems like it fits well. That's exciting for <laughs> so. me. It's, it's, you know, again, it's like I want to be somewhere where there's, still work to be done. And obviously yeah. there's work to be done and everything, but I feel like shoulders an area that over the last, if you look over the last say 20 years, since I've been in, you know, med school and beyond, a lot of happening. Why, why would you say that is? Is that simply, you know, obviously arthroscopy, generally speaking, I, I worked with a number of surgeons who, you know, did big time fellowships, you know, like Andrews Institute, for example, there's a doctor I'm thinking of right now that He's a you know sports med surgeon that does arthroscopic shoulder surgery all the time now. But in his fellowship, he didn't do a single arthroscopic shoulder. You know, it's like a relatively new uh, part of the treatment algorithm. Not doing open shoulders, open rotator cuff. Now we can do a, an arthroscopic one. Do you think that plays into why maybe there's a little bit more of a let's say a, a, the forward thinking of opportunities to solve problems within shoulder specifically? Is that because, you know, let's say the advent of arthroscopy is relatively new or is there, you know, mechanics of how the shoulder works specifically and the difficulties in balancing it and things like that? What I, I think it's a lot of factors at once, right? So you have technology, you have things like the arthroscope, right? The yeah. fiber optic camera that made it all happen. Yeah. You have things like um, all of the implants had to be designed, right? So the early anchors yeah. were drilling these transglenoid <laughs> stuff. Yeah. And, you know, as the anchor technology and the instrumentation has improved, then people are kind of starting to, to think outside the box, do things that are a little yeah. bit different, and just keeps rolling. The other thing, quite frankly, is the advent of the MRI. I mean, we're able to diagnose pathology hmm. um, yeah. with a lot of accuracy, whereas before, you know, the idea of, of well, we think this person might have this tiny little tear of this or that structure, you, you would not have done yeah. some large yeah. open procedure without uh, really knowing exactly what was wrong and where it was. And um, not not to say that the physical exam doesn't have a huge role again today, but 
the specificity of the MRI has allowed people to really kind of highlight point. what's wrong yeah. and then go in in a minimally invasive thing. The other thing is with the the deltoid is so important as a muscle. The arthroscope really, um, you know, the idea of doing things without violating that important, you know, muscle and yeah. tendon really is is critical. Yeah. So I think I yeah. think there's a lot of things that have happened and and I think there's still more to be done, honestly. Um, but I but I think that's why there's been so much innovation in that yeah. in that era. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I guess I never put the MRI together with like you know, what are your treatment options if you feel like there might be something, but you can't identify it on an MRI. Now you can treat maybe something that's like a, a small tear, for example, arthroscopically and not violate the deltoid, you know, and in a way that otherwise you're doing a huge incision on them and, you know, the and not even know, recovery. And, that's right, Colby, and not even knowing it's there. You know, well, I think you might yeah. have a tear, but do I really want to slice this person wide open yeah. and go do some exploratory thing? No, I mean, the other thing is you've got to, you know, a whole generation of people who grew up playing video games, right? And, and basically doing those, that hand-eye coordination, watching yeah. things on a screen. You know, uh, you know, 50 years ago, that wasn't the case. I yeah. mean, the whole idea of kind of watching something on TV while you're working with your hands was would have been very foreign. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. That's interesting. Um, kind of, I guess, moving into to practice now, um, I had a couple of questions I wanted to kind of touch on. Um, a lot of people that think about becoming a surgeon mm -hmm. have to, they're at some level consciously or subconsciously recognizing that they're giving up a significant amount of their time to be able to do that. Their 20s and their 30s. You know, you're probably going to become an attending surgeon at some point, you know, early, mid 30s at the, at the soonest, depending on obviously training, how many fellowships do you do, whatever. Um, talk to me about like the sacrifice that you had to make in, you know, did it, did it cross your mind or is it something that like, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon from the very beginning and that's just part of the deal. You know, the, the sacrifice that that surgeons make is pretty significant. That's a, that's a great question. And it's, um, this is really good, I guess, for all the, uh, if any, you know, med students or residents are yeah. out there, you know, the bottom line is it's incredibly hard. It is yeah. incredibly hard. I did it before the work hours came in and then kind of as they were starting to be instituted. But even now with the work hour stuff, residents work incredibly hard. And mm -hmm. then you still work hard once you're in your career. Yeah. I mean, it is yeah. a very hard field. Um, you know, I felt like I had kind of the hand-eye coordination and kind of the science, um, you know, interest yeah. and acumen. That yeah. It just felt like this is what I am put on this earth to do, as ridiculous as that sounds. Um, and yes, it's hard, but I mean... My grandparents were farmers in central Kansas, yeah. and this is not any That's harder than them. I don't work any longer hours than they do. There are a lot of people. I mean, I'm a surgeon. I make a, a great living. I love what I do. There are many people who work as hard or as harder as me, and I try to have sure. that perspective of, yeah, you know, maybe I work a little harder than some people in certain, you know, white-collar industries, but I'm a manual laborer, right? I work with my hands, and that's yeah. that's what it comes down to, and, and I'm okay with that. I, I think... Um, the most important thing is that you have to work as hard as you can in all of your training. And the reason is, if I could just do a quick aside here, Colby, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, so many people now do fellowships. Yep. Fellowships are great. But when I started, fellowships were frequent, but not everyone did them. And now that if groups have gotten larger and, and um, more people are hospital employed, they want everyone to be fellowship trained, essentially. Sure. So, sure. so now people are doing two and even three fellowships. That's fine. The problem with that, though, is that 
there's become a mindset among some. I mean, the residents are great, but you can't fall into the trap of, hey, I don't have to learn, you know, shoulder or hip and knee if I'm going to go into spine. I'm going to learn everything I want in my fellowship. And so this is just, right? right? Or I don't have to learn hand if I'm going into sports. You fall into this trap of you basically spend five years of your life not, you know, just kind of floating by uh-huh, and not, uh-huh. you got to make the most of that. So I guess my point is those times where it's long hours, like yeah. that's an gr- unbelievable, unmatched learning experience. And I try not to think of it as work. Try to think of it as this is, this is it. Like yeah. this is the training I'm going to get to power me for the rest of my career. And I better make the most of this. You know, you got to enjoy the journey, I guess, to some extent. Yeah. Well, you know, it, this may, we may end up just cut, cutting this question, but the, at least what also comes to mind for me is that um, there are some surgeons that, you know, I've got relationships with that they may have done a specific fellowship, you know, a, a knee-focused fellowship, let's say. But when they get into their practice, there might be plenty of uh, surgeon peers that are, you know, elderly in the practice who get a lot of those patients anyway. And so they're doing, they may have trained specific on knee, let's say, but they might have to take a lot of hip cases or, you know, do some trauma, do some foot and ankle cases, do some hand and wrist cases. So, you know, at some level, have you seen that where, yeah, it, you know, it's great to become a specialist in this one thing, but there's no guarantee that the practice you're going to walk into day one is going to, you're just going to have those patients coming through your door. You're going to have to see a broad spectrum. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. Like you want to have a goal of what you want your practice to eventually be. But you don't want to walk into a practice day one and say, hey, I just graduated from fellowship. I only do, um, you know, healthy, insured people (laughs) with uh, labral tears that have no bone loss. I mean, that's great. We get in line. We all do that, too. (laughs) Right. 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 You need to to be able to add value. And the adding value is by doing something that's either very, very complex or maybe not as savory to the other partners, mm-hmm. right? Something that they don't want to do for whatever sure. reason. Sure. And so, you know, for me, coming in, um, so I worked at Duke for 10 years uh, after fellowship. Yeah. And when I was at Duke, um, you know, we had a lot of great sports surgeons there. Um, but I brought some unique things as far as the revision arthroplasty, sure. as far as treatment of shoulder girdle, proximal humerus, scapula, fractures, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you know, that the other folks in the practice were more comfortable in different niches. So you need to be able to bring something to the table. And the, the broader your skill set is, yeah. the more options you can have. Because if I went to them and, and they already had someone that do those things, well, then I'd say, well, okay, I also do elbow. Okay, great. Then we sure. want your elbow stuff. Sure. So you want to have numerous kind of uh, buttons to push, levers to pull, because the, you don't know what the practice will be. Yeah. And the practice may change during your career, yeah. right? So, so my practice um, was very heavy. You know, it was a lot of arthroplasty and fracture when I was at Duke. I'm still doing a lot of those, but I'm doing a lot of instability because I've started doing arthroscopic latergé and some minimally invasive instability things where I can add some value with that here at Rush. So, yeah. again, you need to be flexible, and the, the more breadth your skill set is, you know, the better. Yeah, totally makes sense. Um, what, uh, one more question, I guess, on the fellowship, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I did one of these with one of your surgery partners here, and I, I was... His answer was interesting to me. I guess I hadn't thought about it that way. What um, in your fellowship and moving then into your into practice, what is it that you feel like was maybe the most or the couple most 
important and impactful things from doing a fellowship that you were able to bring into your practice. Um, and the, I guess my intuition as an outsider was, well, a lot of it is like the skill sets, you know, like the fine motor control, understanding how to do those procedures. Okay, you've got a you know, B2 clinoid, how am I gonna treat this patient or whatnot? But um, my understanding now is there's a lot that's the treatment algorithm. You know, what does each patient need? Um, might be as important, if not more important, than actually learning the skill set of doing a procedure. You know, what is it for you, like looking back at your fellowship, that you were able to take from that, maybe that was more important than something else? Sure. So it is both. So when you graduate residency, you want to have the technical expertise to physically go through the steps of the operation sure. in a manual way. And, the, and you have to learn that. But that part you, you learn in a couple months. I mean, yeah. that, that's the easy part. It's the, the lifelong learning is, is the algorithms, but nobody ever fits exactly in the algorithm. Sure. So kind of what are the nuances? How do you read? You know, what about this? Because there's a lot of times where there's two operations and you know how to do both operations, but what's the right one for that patient? Yeah, totally. And, and also, you know, another thing you learn is, you know, people say you learn when, how to operate and then you learn when not to operate. Yeah. You know, how yeah. to operate when to operate, and then when not to operate. So there are definitely people that as I've gone on my career, I say, listen, I can say with authority, I have done the, you know, a lot of challenging cases, and I feel confident that I can do this operation successfully, but even with that, you're still not gonna be happy with the result. And it's sure, kind of empowering sure. to be able to have that, you know, experience to step back to and say, and then look the patient in the eye and basically, you know, tell them, hey, you're gonna be happy at the end of the yeah. day or not. So. Well, so the it's, confidence, it's all I would imagine above. your confidence in being able to communicate that to the patient, I would, you know, at some level that's going to make a difference in their outcome, you know, in their confidence as you being their surgeon. Absolutely. And, and again, we're, we're in the business of fixing people. So, you know, we, we don't like to say, hey, this, this can't be fixed. But, you know, sure. And every now and then I'll tell someone, though, you know, listen, I can do this operation. I just think at the end of the day with all that, you know, you're not going to necessarily be happy. And then, you know, we talk to the patients about it and. They make an informed decision, but yeah, yeah, it's all those things. It's it's the nuances, the art of medicine about kind of how to read the patient, what they're looking for, what their goals are. It's the the algorithmic part of it, and then obviously it's the technical aspects of being able to do the operations. And can you get a patient from a position of pathology to be a position of you know well health and optimal function? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, I guess question specifically on being in teaching institutions, which mm -hmm. you've been in pretty much your entire career. Um, is that something that you knew you wanted to be in versus going into private practice? Is there, you know, I guess a couple of avenues you could take this is, you know, did you always want to be in a teaching institution? And maybe also, you know, what part of your day is consumed by, you know, the residents or the fellows that you have here in, in Kind of how does that also change maybe what your day-to-day -day would look like if you were just a private practice physician? Right. So, so, um, so I think it's all. It's always. I've always been in those institutions because of my interest in research and teaching. That's yeah. always been the ideal fit. It's where you're going to do. Yeah. I will yeah. say that's changing over time. You know, as the bureaucracy at these large academic institutions gets more, you know, Byzantine. And they have the same um, kind of number bottom line things that make them driven by case volume, just like every private practice person. And as the private practice groups get bigger and bigger, more and more specialized, you know, frankly, private practice groups are doing fantastic research. We here at Rush, we're at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, mm -hmm. so we're a private mm -hmm. yep, kind of hybrid thing. But I see the distinction between the two blurring a lot. 
the academic practices are becoming more yeah. private practice-y. And the private practice ones, they have fellows, they're doing yeah. research. I mean, many of them have like basic science labs. I mean, it really is becoming more and more similar. But be that as it may, the, the obvious choice for me was an academic or at least private-demic model early on. I think, um, what was the second half of your question? I, I Yeah, apologize. just what the, what the day-to-day for you looks like having oh, right. those. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, you know, I'm, right, I'm an um, associate professor of orthopedic mm-hmm. surgery at Rush Medical College, right? So a lot of people think I must go to a lot of, give a lot of lectures, and we do, right? Yeah. But a lot of it is on-the-job training. It's kind of the apprentice model where a resident or fellow is with us kind of shoulder-to-shoulder in clinic in the OR, and they're with us. They're, we're asking questions here and there. We do give lectures from time to time, but a lot of it is teaching with the patient, teaching mm-hmm. at the bedside, um, you know, teaching in yeah. surgery, that sort of thing. So that's that's where the teaching happens, and that's great. You know, the the residents and fellows are always pushing us. You know, they make us really stay on top of our game, um, and that's that's definitely something that energizes me and keeps me going. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, kind of, I touched on this uh, earlier, but you know, looking ahead um, at there's obviously our world is kind of crazy right now, but you know, as you see the trajectory of medicine, you know, in that. You know, changing or maybe not changing. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to change. That's probably a bad way to say it. I'm sure it's going to be changing somehow, some way. Um, you had already stated about you know private practice and how the the lines between that and academics is kind of becoming more blurred. Where do you see the the direction of medicine going? And maybe you know, as more of a macro stance, uh, you know, two, five, ten years out, um, what would that look like? Maybe for, for somebody that's considering going into med school. You know, that's maybe 18, 21. What do you think it looks similar to your path or do you see it kind of diverging to something, you know, maybe completely different than what we're sitting here talking about right now? So I think um, there's a lot in that question. I think that it's kind of a big question, (laughs) but it's a it's a great question. So I think that the trend in the last few years has been groups are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. And this is based on the, the economics of the insurance companies, basically the ability to negotiate contracts, you know, there's safety yeah. in numbers. If you're if you're a two-man private practice, you know, you have no hope. You're yeah. going to take what they give you as far as the contracts because they hold the insurance companies hold all the cards. Mm-hmm. Um, the other aspect is the increased regulatory burden, right? So all the stuff with the High Tech Act, et cetera, et cetera, there's a certain kind of drag that can be spread out over a number of employees. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely like a synergy to have a larger group. So all that has led to larger groups. Why does that matter? Well, when you have a larger group, there's more increased specialization. So if you have a mm-hmm. two, three, mm-hmm. four, five-man group, they don't want someone who only does this yeah, one little right. niche thing. If you've got a group where there's 30, 40 docs, they can have a pediatric sports medicine specialist, right? Yeah. And, and that's a fantastic niche, right? But if you have a two-man, per, there's just not enough yeah. of those to yeah, fill yeah. that. So I think you're going to continue to see people that are you know, fellowship-trained, multi-fellowship-trained, doing very specific things. I mm-hmm. think, um, you know, the people that trained me at Duke, you know, would literally do like, you know, Bill Hardiker would do an ACDF and then do a total knee and then do an <laughs> yeah. ACL yeah, in the yeah. same day, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, and rest in peace, Dr. Hardiker has passed away. But like, you know, those, that is, um, it's a dying breed and it's sad because I think that that we're going to lose something when we lose Mm-hmm. Those people with that broad skill set. So again, try to keep your skill set broad. But I, but I do think the trend is inevitable that yeah, yeah. towards specialization. Yeah, kind of in the polymath realm. 
you know, at some level we need uh, people that have a, a level of expertise in a lot of areas to kind of, I don't, I don't, it's hard to even put your finger on exactly what would be lost by it, but there's definitely some value in that. I just, I feel like there's, you know, there's instruments that you use sometimes. and Like I use a vascular surgery clamp to pass around the coracoid, mm. right? And mm. that's something I remembered from the, you know, yeah. vaguely from some vascular surgery thing. <laughs> and I saw, some, you know, I, some people do uh, different things that are, um, that they, you know, that they know from different aspects of their training. There's different techniques. Yeah. For example, the hip and hip and knee stuff, shoulder arthroplasty, a lot of that is very analogous. So there's definitely some cross-pollination and we'll mm-hmm. lose something, but it's the fields are becoming more more specialized and it's somewhat inevitable. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, let me uh, transition a little bit to something, I guess, more selfish of a conversation for me personally being, being a rep. I'm curious, what, um, you know, your experience working with medical sales reps and, you know, them in the OR, um, you know, what do you think is, or what have you experienced maybe is kind of the key differentiator to be somebody, somebody that is a, you know, a very good sales rep, medical sales rep versus somebody that, you know, would otherwise not be, you know, is there, is there something that you've seen on your side of the, of the, you know, aisle, so to speak, that is, you've identified like, you know, this is really what the surgeon in somebody like your position needs from somebody that's on the medical sales side of things? Well, I mean, I'll start by saying that being a medical, I mean, I'm talking about how hard it is to be a surgeon. Being a medical sales rep is an incredibly hard job because... Um, you don't have to say that just because this... No, is no, it's, it's, it's the, it's the truth. It's the truth. It really is. And I think that, um, it, it, and the reason is, first of all, if you don't have good products, you're not going to sell anything. Mm-hmm. If you do have good products, but your surgeon, for whatever reason, isn't interested in it, had a bad experience with it, is you know conflicted somewhere else, yeah. maybe his purchasing at his hospital, whatever reason, yeah. you're still going to have trouble. And it, all the headwinds are against you. But assuming that you get the surgeon to try your product out, the key thing for me is that the rep is, is knowledgeable, but never trying to sell me on stuff. So the mm-hmm. best reps that I've ever had, you know, I'd see products at a meeting for that rep's company. Yeah. And I'd come back and I'd say, you never told me. They said, that thing is junk. I would never try to sell you that. And <laughs> yeah. here's why. Yeah. Right? Their own product. Yeah. And that's great. On the flip side, I had, um, when all the metal and metal hip stuff was going down, yeah. Yeah. I remember it was starting to come out and people were writing emails about it. There's a big problem. None of the papers had been out yet. And I had a case on that was a metal on metal hip. And I remember this very clearly. I asked the rep. I said, you know, I'm getting these emails and people are starting to talk. I said, no problem. It's fine. You know, there's no issue yet. And I put that metal and metal hip in that patient. And the stuff came out, you know, yeah. six weeks later that they knew and they knew. And, you know, did the rep know? Did the rep not know? I don't know. But I really got the feeling like that guy had inventory on the shelf and he knew that, you know, it just, it really soured me on it. I'm never going to, I never use that rep again. I never use that company again. And it's probably unfair to the rep, but, you know, that kind of stuff like honesty and kind of knowledge about what's going on with your product. Yeah you know, um, is just the sine qua non of the whole thing. You have to have that. And then also surgeons will ask, hey, you know, what's the mismatch radius of curvature on your, your glenoid versus yep. your total shoulder? Either know it or be able to figure it out relatively quickly. Yeah. So you kind of have to have all the answers. And that's, the hard thing is that takes time and experience. 
Um, but the, the best reps have that. They're not pushy. They're not going to sell stuff that's that's junk because we'll, we'll I mean we'll know right away. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's not going to work. Yeah. And you want to um, and you're always kind of ready. So you know, hey, I had this. Oh my gosh, this didn't work. I I, I fractured the humerus. Don't worry, I've got the long stems on backup. I mean that stuff does yeah. not. We we get that that's much. You bring those things in in your dolly every day. It's heavy. It's annoying. You never use them, and then the one time you need them. The, the surgeons that know yeah. what's going on, they appreciate the reps that do that. Yeah, yeah, I totally get it. Well, certainly in my, you know, I guess almost eight years of experience doing it, there, the level of trust of being able to, like to your point, you know, asking a rep about a product and the rep being candid with you and saying, you don't want to use that one, or there's definitely something better. There's, I would imagine, a, a lot of, you know, to the extent that, you know, the rep is a factor in the decision-making process on which products to use. There's probably a good percentage of that is the trust and the confidence that you have. That they're, they're not just trying to sell you a product, you know, because there's an inherent uh, <laughs> counterproductive, it's, how, how would I describe it? The, the rep has a job to do, to sell right, the product. of course. But there's also the treatment of the patient and you and what is good in your hands, you know, because not every surgeon has the same skill set physically or mentally, sure. or, you know, they have, you know, you have your opinions on what the proper, the best, you know, reverse shoulder is versus somebody right. else. So there's. So it's, it's, it's a delicate balance, but um, as surgeons and kind of scientists and kind of coming from that kind of, you know, a very objective thing, you know, the very salesy quote unquote, reps to kind of do the hard sell, like a lot of us kind of recoil from that a yeah. little bit. Um, we prefer to, to talk like data and yeah. facts and, and hey, this, these design features, like that's, that's the way to a surgeon's heart mm -hmm. is, is science, evidence, um, you know, particular features that you think are important. Yeah. That's going to get them more excited about the product and build like a lasting relationship. Um, you know, and if you're, it's, it's, again, it's a delicate balance because you, I mean, you're, again, you're trying mm -hmm. to get your mm -hmm. products out there and you want at least them to see it and evaluate sure. it. I'm sure sometimes you, you have a hard time even getting in to get it sure. trialed or even, even showing it to them. Um, but, you know, I think most surgeons, I myself try to keep an open mind and, you know, I have, you know, implant companies that I, I work with as a yeah. designer and, and implants that I've used as a surgeon. And, but I'm, I'm, I'm always looking you know, hey, what else is out there that I can see and learn about to help my patients? Yeah. Well, that at the end of the day, that's what's most important. 100%. And it has to be. 100%. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, what uh, a more specific question on kind of um, how you make a decision on the products you use. You know, a lot of, a lot of companies and reps try to, you know, make a product that's different, but maybe not better. You know, so like I'm, I can make this one, you know, blue handle versus a red handle. What's kind of your um, decision making on the products that you use and how much of that maybe is driven by the training that you had in fellowship? You know, because at least what we've seen on our side of the business or my side of the business is, you know, a lot of, and rightfully so, a lot of surgeons that come out of their training, they're going to use what they learned, you know, and, and there's a certain level of trust and confidence. And now that you are the attending surgeon and you're fully responsible for this patient, you know, it's, it's all in your hands. So um, what does that look like? And, and I would say, 
you know, I guess the, sure. the other question there is how much of the products that you've chosen to use, obviously you're on the design team, so that's, you know, that's a little bit different because you have that interest and that, that focus. How much of that has changed over your career as far as you started using one and then went to something else? Or um, yeah, how do, you, how do you think about that? So I don't want to give the impression that it's, that it's what a surgeon uses is all about data and science, right? Because it, at the end of the day, it's what they think works best in their hands. Mm-hmm. And some of that is informed by the science. Some of that is informed by their own personal experience sure. or the experience they've had with their in their fellowship. So yeah. Yeah. definitely that's a big part of it. Um, it's also kind of, um, there's kind of a, uh, you know, especially in shoulder and elbow, we're a relatively tight-knit community. So a lot of us, hey, have you tried this new anchor or that yeah, new implant? Yeah. Hey, what'd you think? Or, or we yeah. share cases, hey, this is a difficult, this is a type C glenoid. Yeah. You know, what would you use for this? Oh, I'd use... I'd use a Perform Plus Augment from Right Medical Tornado, or no, I'd use an um, Shoulder Innovations like um, you know Insect Clinic, right? So we have those debates about yeah. about cases where, where the rep's not even involved, doesn't even know the conversations going on, but the different surgeons that have used it and have different opinions are kind of sharing their pros and cons, and we're kind yeah. of debating it, and that's really effective because you know they don't necessarily have they they don't have any skin on the game, so to speak. Yeah. And, and we're just literally having a, a debate about it and what works best in their experience. So I think those things um, are important. Have I changed what I use? For sure. I mean, a lot of the stuff, I mean, the good advice is when you leave fellowship, don't change anything. Like yeah. do it exactly <laughs> right. the same right. for a year. Right. Like don't try to yeah. reinvent the wheel, come out and do it exactly the way your fellowship team did it. Now mm-hmm. at my fellowship at Rothman, it's a very large fellowship, a number of absolutely fantastic attendings and so you know we're seeing um you know we're seeing uh depew implants uh, yeah. he was using them with jerry williams we're seeing we were seeing integro with matt ramsey we're seeing tournier with mark lazarus we're seeing on and on you know charlie gets yeah. uh, john finland etc cetera, etc cetera. so we're seeing all this stuff from different vendors so that one yeah. was kind yeah, of like yeah. okay which one do i choose yeah you get exposed to a lot there but you kind of but you kind of pick one and then you sort of stick with that yeah. and then yeah. then you start to realize okay this is what works in my hands this is what i like and don't like okay now i see why the other fellowship attending did it this mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. and then you start yeah. tinkering and so over time i've changed i mean the especially shoulder changing so much a lot of the implants i'm using now you know weren't even on the market sure. when i was in fellowship you know yeah. i'm, I'm yeah. over 10 years into this and the field moves so rapidly. Yeah, you're talking about not not doing even a primary shoulder, you know, and that I'm sure that was part of obviously just the the surgeons potentially you were working with. Obviously, there were primary shoulders back then, but that was know. because that was a time at Duke where they had two shoulder surgeons leave, and then. Um, but the great part is that was a wonderful opportunity for me to come back and be the attending yeah, shoulder right, surgeon there. Right. So it was kind of a double edged sword, and I I wouldn't trade it for the world. It worked out great. But, uh, but yeah, so I think things change. Um, you know, I was using very much the Grammont for, for the shoulder yeah. nerds out there. I was using very much the Grammont style okay. medialized center rotation. And then I went and saw Pascal Borlo, did the bio RSA kind of early on yeah. um, when I went to visit him in Nice. And then I started thinking a little bit more lateralized. And now I use the, the DJO implant with the yeah. lateralized sphere for a lot of things. Um, but again, there's pros and cons to all these things, and it's engineering design that's all about, well, if we do this, you get this thing better, but you lose this or that. Sure. So you gotta decide, in that particular patient, you know, what are you really looking to achieve and what's gonna get you there the most efficiently? Yeah, the, you brought that up, sorry, I 
should have brought this up earlier. And I was going to ask about the traveling fellowship that you did. Oh and yeah. You were my understanding of reading about it is that you were one of two people selected for North America to to do that. It was a my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, six week traveling fellowship in Europe. I hope you have enough recording uh, time on here because I could go on about this. <laughs> check the. Uh, it was check the. Yeah. <laughs> it was incredible. So so. And the, when did when did sorry sorry to interrupt. When did that all. happen relative to coming out of fellowship and then being in your practice? Because my understanding, look at the, the at the dates, it it was yeah. 2017. So I did I did. Two, I went to Europe to learn about shoulders twice. One time, okay. right after residency, I wrote letters to Pascal Boulot and Gilles Walsh and said, I'm going to be a shoulder fellow, <laughs> and I've never seen a reverse total shoulder. Can I come visit you? And they were so gracious. That's and, great. And, and Gilles and Pascal, um, I went to Lyon and Nice, France, and I was a resident. And you know that, that very short period of time when you're kind of should be decompressing from residency and getting ready for fellowship. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. kind of not my style, as you may have gathered. So I was like, I'm still going <laughs> to learn about shoulders and I'm still going to keep being in the OR. I don't want any breaks. And it was incredible. I, I, I printed out the abstract of everything they'd ever written. I read it on the plane right over. <laughs> and then I have these black books that I still have, these little moleskins that I wrote everything yeah. down. So, um, and it was great. I learned so much. Um, that was thing one. That was just a couple weeks. Then fellowship, and then the ASES has a what's called the European Exchange Fellowship. It's unbelievable. So every so every other year, there's two fellows from either the U.S. or Canada okay. that go over to Europe, and then the alternating years, the SESEC, which is the European Shoulder Number Society, sends two fellows over this way. And you've got to do yeah. it. Um, the last year you can do it is your seventh year of practice. So okay. Because, so they want people. So typically, they don't give it to people that are right out of fellowship. Yeah. You're, you're kind of five, six, seven years into practice because okay. they want someone that that knows what they're doing, has their own experience, but also and can share that with the Europeans. But also, you know, is it a point where they can yeah. know what they, they don't know? And absolutely. Like, yeah. So all the little nuances. I mean, at that point, you don't need to be scrubbed in. I know. Right. I've done right. so many shoulders. I was doing a couple hundred a year for seven years at that point. So I can. I can see little nuances in the spot just by watching. So yep. you basically go to different sites uh, in Europe. And I mean, we were, I was in Italy with Alex Castagna. I was in uh, Annecy, France with Laurent Lafosse. We were at the Berlin. Oh. Um, we were in Berlin at the um, SESIC meeting. Yeah. Uh, Marcus Scheibel was there, Christian Gerber in Zurich. I mean, I don't want to leave anybody out, like yeah, Ofer yeah, Levy yeah. In, in, in England. And, um, I mean, on and on. Emilio Calvo in Spain. I'm sure I'm going to leave somebody out here. We can give him some shout-outs in the uh, shout-outs in the notes. But it yeah. was an, it was an incredible trip. Um, my co-fellow Anshu Singh did the Harvard uh, Fellowship, and we became fast friends. And it's great. You just go from site to site. You you have a little um, conference. You you spend the day with them, and then you have a just a fantastic dinner and kind of a little yeah. cultural experience in the evening. And then. Um, you maybe you, you, then the next morning you go to the next site and you do it over six weeks. I think they've shortened it to four weeks just to make it easier to fit in. But it's between the SESIC meeting and the ASES meeting. So you go to the two meetings, the European one and the American one. It, it's it, extreme exhaustion. You're traveling all the time sure. and you're getting yeah. up early for these ORs. And then you're you're staying up late. You know, you don't want to miss out. It's like, when are you going to be in like St. Gallen? Switzerland with Berhard Joost, right? <laughs> and it's just you know, like, this is unbelievable yeah. experience. So, so yeah, great experience. Learned so much about shoulders. Saw so many different things. I mean, how different the yeah, things right. were done. Right. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, and the, 
it's just it was it was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. How did you? What was the process like for you to be? Before selected? you go on, yeah, another good one. Leonard yeah. Funk, who has the Shoulder Doc website, which is a great website, shoulderdocs.co.uk. Okay. I mean, again, unbelievable. When I'm riding around in his, um, in his totally restored GTO, you know, muscle car really? <laughs> through the like through you know through the English countryside. And then the next morning, seeing him do just a masterful SCR. I mean, so anyway, it's it's a once in a lifetime experience. It was a little depressing at the end of it, thinking yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm going to do anything this cool in my life again. Anyway, well, that would have been uh, maybe you'll end up there at some point. Yeah. It, it was fun, and the aspect was you know changing countries every couple of days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my passport got some serious stamps on it then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding, no kidding. Uh, what I was going to ask is how do how does the selection process work for identifying who are the people that are going to go there? I mean, you know, the, like, at least from the outside, it sounds like, you know, one of two people that get selected every two years. That's, you know, I'm not, this may be a softball question. I'm not trying to just teach you hard, <laughs> but like, you know, what does that process look like to be selected? To do so it's, it's like, you know, like, like, like you might expect. So you, you have letters of rec from yeah. people that have yeah. worked with you. You have an application and a CV and, yeah. um, I don't think there's an interview. In fact, there's not an interview, but you, you send it all in and then they, they pick the two people they want to represent the U.S. Yeah. Really cool thing is um, the European fellows, when I was at Duke, also picked Duke as one of the sites, which That's they had cool. never picked before. Um, For the European fellows to yeah. come visit. Yeah. So they came and visited Duke. And so it was neat to be not only one That's of the great. fellows, but also one That's of the sites. Great. And obviously here at Rush, we're a site. The fellows, we gave them a great experience. We... we um, we took him to a demolition derby. Uh, we went golfing, um, great golfing in North Carolina, and we uh, we had a bunch of barbecue. And uh, you know they they were like these these two guys from uh, you know from Belgium and Netherlands, uh, you know Van Tongel and Cherko Van Holta. They just they loved it. So we it was a great time, and it's a great time to meet and make forge lifelong relationships with yeah. with you know across the pond, so to speak. Oh yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, I think. Uh, I think that's about it. We need to wrap things up. But um, anything else that you want to add to this, or any uh, any parting thoughts or words of wisdom? I just want to say uh, thanks for the opportunity. I think that um, you know I know this podcast is a wide audience, but I think there's no uh, substitute for kind of knowing your stuff. You know, honesty and hard work. Whether you're a rep, a student, a surgeon, um, I think that's really the recipe for success. Certainly, that's what I've tried to follow. And and uh, I just appreciate you letting me kind of share my experience and, and learn from you, Colby. Yeah, well, I uh, I thoroughly thoroughly appreciate it as well. So thanks for uh, thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Medical Sales Certification Podcast. And as you know, we give all of our content and training away for free. So it would really mean a lot to me if you could subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review. And if you thought that this episode in particular was helpful, consider sending it to somebody you know who you think could benefit as well. Thanks again, and we will see you on the next episode.